If your Bibles turn with me to the epistle of James, whole people living in a broken world. This is uh, the message of James. We are whole not because of our, our goodness, our smarts, but because of Christ. And, and yet God has chosen uh, to, to leave us in a broken world. Faith and works is also the message of James. We don't work to be saved, we work because we are saved. And so James, as you dive into this book, is a very practical book. Martin Luther, though, instigator of the Reformation, had a hard time with the book of James. He thought it lacked the grace of God, a throwback to the law and order days of the old covenant. He, he couldn't see how, how James understood Paul's great themes of justification and sanctification by faith, which uh, so powerfully fueled his own salvation story. And so Luther gave the book of James a hard designation. He called it the epistle of straw. He said the book was very dangerous and a bad book. He said, I feel like throwing Jimmy into the stove. Got to know a little bit about Martin Luther to understand here. Later in life, though, I'm happy to say, Luther, whose mind was also growing and learning, revised his opinion of the book. It was perhaps through the influence of his colleague, Philip, and after reading the commentary of James by John Calvin that Luther wrote later, I think highly of James now and regarded as very valuable. Can I be honest with you this morning? I too have had trouble with the book of James in my life. Some different reasons. It's a hard book to read. Not because it's hard to understand, although there are parts of this book that can be difficult. No, it's hard because the book of James steps on my toes. I don't like that. And I'm guessing it'll step on your toes. I, I can't help but read the book of James and come away flinching, just waiting for the next thing that he's going to bring to my doorstep. And as you read the book of James, it looks into our hearts and see the, the evil that lurks there, the pride, the prejudice, the self-righteousness, the hypocrisy, the deceit. And he, he targets these cold and deliberate sins and delivers his message with a, a lethal accuracy. But unlike Paul's epistles, James seems to jump from one topic to another. He takes one subject giving full pastoral admonition and then in a blink of an eye, scoots to a new discussion. His arguments are not always easy to follow since he gives us very few grammatical markers to show us how his mind is working. And so in some ways, the book of James can be distracting to read. And yet it's still very engaging. He uses many analogies. He, he writes about being tossed and driven by the sea and withering plants and looking into a mirror and a dead body and and and. and uh, bridling a horse and a, a rudder turning a, a large ship. And then he talks about a forest fire and taming wild beasts and drinking water, but, but it's bitter. And, and a vanishing vapor and, and, and your clothes being eaten by moss and farmers waiting for a harvest. It's, a, it's an engaging book. But it's, it's primarily an exhortation for the Christian to keep loving and serving God in the midst of this broken world. And the book almost reads like a collection of oral sermons that James might have preached at one time. There's much to say about this short book. It's only five chapters. It's only 2,400 words. And Lord willing, we'll get an opportunity in the coming, the coming months to, to learn more about it and apply it to our lives. But this morning, we're going to look at the whole book, okay? Where we're going to change gears a little bit and zoom out 
and, and look at the book as a whole. It's like when you're flying and, and you're reaching your destination. Have you ever flown into Seattle and, and you've lived here a long time, but you're, you're coming in at 1,000, 2,000 feet and you can see everything. And it just gives you a whole different vantage point of where you live. That's what we're gonna do with the book of James this morning. I did something similar, similar with the, the book of 1 Samuel and I'm, I'm gonna venture to do it here again, this fly overview of James. And so I was gonna read the entire book of James at the beginning, but as I mentioned, because James flies in so many different directions, I don't know if that was as beneficial to read all in one sitting uh, for this time, for this, for this way. So there'll be a lot that we're gonna thumb through. So if you don't have your Bibles open to James, you're gonna be lost. And, and just so you know, if you're visiting we preach from the Bible. So you're gonna have to have that open. If you have one or don't have one, we have some in the foyer. But you're gonna need to be open to James. We're gonna stay primarily in James this morning. And, and James will speak directly into the Christian's life. And, and there's, this morning I wanna look at three lies that James will unmask in these five chapters. Three lies. And I wanna give, give them to you here. My outline, three lies, and then we'll pray. Lie number one is trials are bad. Lie number one, trials are bad. Lie number two, faith is only what I think. Faith is what I, only what I think. And lie number three, religion is private. Those are the three lies, and so let me pray, and we'll dive in. God, we, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to come and gather together as the body of Christ. And, and God, we ask that as we look into your word that you would teach us. God, I ask that they would hear from you, that you would be the guide. And as we open up your word to us, that you would change us and, and convict us and cause us to, to leave this place different than when we came in. And we'll be sure to give you all the honor and glory for what you do here this morning. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So, jumping in. Lie number one, trials are bad. This is a lie, and yet there's some truth to it. Uh, unless you're a masochist and, and you, uh, you enjoy pain in some way. As humans, we try to avoid pain. You, you avoid things that are painful and difficult because you have the natural reaction to preserve yourself. So in, in one sense, this is right. But I believe as humans, we can easily be deceived into knowing that all trials are bad. That's knowing the difference between bad and good, and it comes so quickly for you. If something appears to be bad, then it must be bad. But in the book of James, he wants to, to work on us in, in this natural tendency to avoid any and all trials. And he begins right off the bat in verse 2. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet, various, when, when you meet trials of various kinds. And, and, and what are trials for, for based upon this verse? He says, they are to be considered as joy. Wow. Isn't that revolutionary to this culture and to our heart's natural inclination? And why does James say this? Well, he gives us some more reasons to follow. In verse 3, for you know, first, for you know that the, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you've lived any time on earth, you've experienced what James says here. And almost everything on earth has a time of testing. Um, I like uh, technology. I am an iPhone. I've bought the first one, and I've just continued on. So all you Android people, you can just tune me out for a moment. But for the last few years, 
Um, every year, Apple updates their, their, their operating system. And in the last few years, they've offered it to the public. And it's called beta. So you can download it. And I always want the, the best, I think, or the newest. So you can download it. You can download this. But they also, they just warn you over and over. They warn you. It's a beta software. It's not fully approved. It, it needs testing. And that's, I'm the sucker that got sucked in. And so this kinks, and it might not work properly. It might cause distress. It might even uh, cause my phone not to work correctly. Um, and, and so it's this testing period that is important for them to get the software ready to, to send out to everyone. And then when it's sent out, Joe, it works perfectly, unlike Android phones. Just so Joe knows. <clears throat> um, but it's a testing period. So we have this for all of it. I mean, aren't you thankful that cars are tested before they're sold to the public? We have this testing period. And it's the same for our lives. Trials brings completeness. They bring maturity. The challenges in your marriage teach you to love someone who's not like you. The difficulties in your parenting show us you don't know everything. And raising someone who is a lot like you is hard. Trials are difficult. But he's saying they're, they're necessary. And so count it all joy. Second, he says trials help us to depend on God. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We live in a time where we want to do everything on our own, in our own strength. And because of this, we, we have learned not to depend on God. And because God loves us, he brings trials into our lives and he brings difficult situations in which we have no other option but yet to trust in him. And, and when we trust in him, we grow. And what's our response when hard things come? You know, in John's gospel, after Jesus had said a number of hard things which causes a number of his followers to, to turn and walk away, he, sends, he says to the disciples, he says, what are you going to do? Do you want to leave too? And what do they say? Do you remember? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. They're saying, Jesus, there's no other option. We choose to trust you. Well, how about you, friend? What's, what's your response to the hard things that God has brought into your life? When there's no end in sight, there's no resolve just around the corner. Do you consider them joy? Often because he loves us so much, God will put us in hard situations so that we can learn afresh how trustworthy he really is. There's no wasted trials in the economy of God. Well, the third reason we should consider it all joy is because there's a crown at the end of life. He writes in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. God's plan for trials is not always our plan. And the trials we face have a shelf life. There will be an end to them one day. And for those that are in Christ Jesus, we will receive what he's promised to us through the blood of Christ. We'll, 
receive the crown of life. Now, the last reason we should consider all joy to endure trials is because they have been sent by God. I've kind of repeated this already, but it's, it's compared to the temptations that are not sent by God. James sends, says in the next verse, verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Temptations do not come from God, but they do bring a sort of maturity, the type that we don't want. He gives us the steps when we, when we succumb to temptation, and it, he says that ultimately the maturity there is death, but not so with the trials that God sends us. He, he brings them lovingly into our lives to, to bring a godly maturity so that we can grow fully to trust in him. And he promises not to, to leave us on our own, but to faithfully bring us to himself. Trials strengthen our faith because they cause us to practice putting our full trust in God for what we cannot see. And James encourages us to, to look at trials with new eyes, to think of them as joy. Now, this doesn't mean that we pretend that life is always perfect and easy. And it doesn't mean that we walk around with a a happy face painted on. It doesn't mean we, we also, we don't jump to negative conclusions too quickly either. If, if something feels hard or bad at first, we tend to react negatively. It's, it's human nature, but trials is the way of God and his way with his children. His love for us is seen by bringing those things into our lives that seem bad at the outset and yet are there for us to learn to trust in him more. I mean, how often do we see this with parents and their children or doctors with their patients or friends who are faithful to their friends? Our, our emotional reaction may be negative at first, but that emotion has a God-given purpose. It forces us to confront reality with the question, do I really trust God? And, and we must not allow our emotions to, to lead us in the wrong way, but we, we allow our emotions to lead us into biblical thinking. Otherwise, our emotions will take us in directions that will hinder spiritual growth. I came across a great illustration of this. Think of our emotions as the jet stream for, a, for an airline pilot. If the jet stream is going in the airplane's direction, it's very helpful. If the airplane turns into headwinds, the winds slow the plane down a good bit. And if the winds blow from the side, flying can be quite dangerous. Emotions are like that for us. On the one hand, emotions can be extremely helpful. And on the other hand, trials can produce winds of emotion that feel like headwinds or even crosswinds. So we cannot take our directions from our emotions. We have to take our direction from God and from the truth that he's given us in his word in the scriptures. And, and James says, the word of God says, our trials are there to strengthen our faith and to prove the faithfulness of our God. And something greater than emotion will emerge as we trust in him. We'll have joy in the midst of trials. Trials will come. Not if, but when. And I have to remind you of this. I wouldn't be a very good pastor to you if I sugarcoated everything. I don't preach that way, I don't believe. Trials will come. And they will come from an all-knowing, all-good, and an all-loving God. And I know, 
I know, as I finish this point writing this week, I know that for some of you, this is yet in the future. You're not in it right now. But I also know that there is a host of you, and I've talked to you in the last few weeks, you're in it right now. You're in a trial. And I want you to know, based upon what God's word says, God hasn't left you there. He hasn't abandoned you. He's refining you. And he's calling you to trust him more. So don't believe the lie that all trials are bad. Trust God and count it all joy, for he's right there walking with you. And follow, follow him, and he will continue to mold you and shape you into the image of his son. So that's lie number one. Lie number two is faith is only what I think. So our first lie was that trials are bad, and the second is that faith is only what I think. And again, there's an element of truth here. Faith and belief must have a cognitive element to it. And what sets us apart from everything else in this world is that humans think and much of believing in something is tied to thinking thoughts. And here we have James teaching us about faith and, and taking it a step further than just thinking. And the point he drives home is that hearing God's word is not simply knowing it, but, but doing it. Look down at the end of chapter 1, verse 21. He writes at the end of that verse, receive with meekness the implanted word. And then in verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only. We, we read the word, we listen to it, and we seek to do it, to seek to obey the word. And hearing without doing is confusing and potentially self-deceiving. It's easy to deceive ourselves here. It's dangerous to sit for 45 minutes for a sermon, and because you've listened well and understood what the preacher said, you have then believed that you've moved closer to God. Obviously, I want our people to understand what is preached from this pulpit, and I work hard every week as to communicate in a way that helps the hearer, but my main goal isn't primarily that your knowledge will be inflated on a given subject. And the goal of preaching is to affect the mind, but it's to affect the heart. I'm more concerned that we take the word from this place and apply it to our lives. And so all, if all you do is, is just listen to sermons, or read Christian books just to get smarter, and yet you're unchanged, then you have bought the lie. And you, you believe that faith is only what you think. And I would wager there are many in religious circles and churches that, that have a buildup of religious knowledge, and they never live it out. And so the book of James becomes terrifying to those people because all the hearers have not become doers. And God says at the end of chapter one that their religion, that their faith is worthless. It's unacceptable to God. And further in chapter two, James applies this lie to a certain situation that was prevalent to the churches that he was writing to. It was concerning this, this idea of favoritism, to treating people differently on the basis of external factors. And James says in chapter two, verse one, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Of all people, uh, we should not be the ones to show partiality to other believers. God doesn't get our resume to see if we're qualified before he brings us into the family of God. And neither should we. 
whether that's concerning money or knowledge or good looks, those are never the standards to implement in the church. And favoritism is insulting to the needy and slanderous to the name of God, to the one we serve. You know, how could we claim to have heard God's concern for the needy and yet not translate that into our life? And if you really fulfill the royal law, as, as James says, you will obey it and, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. As he said way back in Leviticus 19. He's saying, you've, you've heard Leviticus, now go and obey it. The law makes no sense if, if it's heard and not obeyed. It's about loving. And what good is it to hear about love if we don't do it? So even a little favoritism isn't okay. He says in chapter 2, verse 9, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. But he's not done. Look at verse 10. He says, forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Even one little slip-up shows that you wholeheartedly disrespect the authority of God. You hear the words of Jesus here, the echoes of him? I can hear it. Matthew 5, Therefore, whoever relaxes on one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He, he knew him pretty well. And you can see that throughout the book of James. But breaking the law anywhere makes us guilty before God. And James sees the law as one seamless garment that when ripped in one place, tears the whole garment. He says in verse 11, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. It takes one lie to make you a liar. It takes one adulterous act to make you an adulterer. It takes one theft to make you a thief. One murder to make you a murderer. One broken law to make you a lawbreaker. And friends, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We've all broken the law of God. And we all stand before him guilty. And that's why the gospel is so beautiful. So freeing and majestic. Because when we, when we pause to see ourselves compared to what the law requires to fully realize that we will never match up or do enough. And we come to the end of ourselves and, and when the gospel is heard and we can finally see that Christ did all that was required and because of him, because of his sacrifice on the cross, we can be accepted, we can be made new, we can now stand before a holy God all because of Jesus Christ. The gospel is beautiful. And I know in a group this size, there is someone here that is continuing to to live their life in a way to try to obey all the rules, thinking that they can save themselves. They're, they're trying to be a good person. They think that this is the way. They, they, they think they want the law, but just, just trying to somehow do enough good, it's a lie. You can never do enough. And right now, if, if you're not a Christian, right now you stand guilty before a holy God. Because you have broken his holy law. And there's nothing you can do to satisfy the holy wrath of God. You need a rescue. You need to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And today can be that day. And I, and I urge you, friend, if that's you, turn from trusting yourself and turn to Christ. He is, he is waiting for you. He's been patiently waiting for you. 
and he can save you. Well, friends, James continues here in chapter two, and he gives us the most um, noted warning in, in chapter two, verse 14. He said, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And what he's saying here is if your faith is just mental, if, if it's just an act of the brain, then it's not faith at all. It's not biblical faith at all. And James, James gives examples. He points to the demons. The demons believe there's one God, and the response, they shudder but it makes no difference to their existence. It doesn't translate into any changed action. It's, it's for them, it's intellectual, that's all. And, and just let this bake your noodle. There, there are no atheist demons. They all believe in God. And, and furthermore, they're all Trinitarian too. So those that have a problem with that, they believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But they're not changed. But maybe you, you're here and you believe in God and you've read the Bible and you believe it but there's no difference in your life. There's no change. Then how is your faith any different than that of a demon? The, the crucial element of relational trust is missing in such faith. Real faith is more than a mental assent to truth. And he points us to the father of the faithful, Abraham. He showed us by his faith what he did. His faith and action worked together. You could even say that his faith was made complete by his action because faith without any action is simply not true faith. And it's true in another example, the surprising person of Rahab, the prostitute. She shows her faith not just by what she thought, by what she did. It affected her life. What does this look like, though? Now, I came across another great illustration. When the glass skyscrapers were first built and, and made, became popular in the 50s, a number of office workers were scared of working on the offices 30 and 40 and even 50 stories uh, high because there was nothing visible stopping them from plunging downward. Reader's Digest once carried a story about one of these earliest skyscrapers describing how a number of people in one office could not work because their desks were too close to these massive windows. And the people in the office would sit there looking down, down all this way, 50 stories, and were petrified and they couldn't do any work. And they knew that there was glass between, a glass window between them and the drop, but they were not used to the idea that glass could act as a barrier. It was causing enough trouble in the office that the building manager was contacted and he came up and told them about the design of the frame and the thickness of the glass and he explained how it could hold so much stress and even gave an example. But they were still nervous. 
The building manager was perplexed about what to do. So he thought, I'll bring up the structural engineer who then come up and explained yet again how the building was built. Still, they did not feel comfortable looking down all that distance. And the engineer said, I have an idea. And he called everyone to, to stand near the inside wall, which they did. And he stepped back and ran full speed toward the glass wall. He hit it with his full weight and he bounced off. He was fine. He was willing to throw his whole life against the glass wall because he knew that it would take it. And friends, this is what James is saying real faith is. You can sit and you can read the Bible and study it and learn it and know it and believe it, but then James says that real faith is taking what we've learned and, and who it is that we say we love and want to serve our whole life and then living it out. A satisfaction we experience when we know or understand the truth can actually become dangerous when the knowing serves as a substitute for living out the truth that we just learned. Real faith is throwing ourselves into service for the truth that we believe. Maybe, though, you've believed a lie that faith is just intellectual. You need to study the scriptures with the heart that you're going to seek to obey the scriptures and not just intellectually understand them. Part of the problem is, is in our English for the word believe. In the Bible, though, belief doesn't just speak of an intellectual recognition. It, it's a deep abiding trust. When you hear John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his own one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, we tend to think that this belief is just an intellectual understanding. But that's not what the word means. The word means to trust in, to cling to, and to rely upon. So think through that verse again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever clings to him, whoever relies upon him, whoever trusts in him as the only way for life eternal, shall not perish, but will live with him forever. Believing is, is clinging to. It's relying on. It's building our life around. It's trusting in. That's the biblical idea of belief. And this is what James is talking about in chapter 2. A believer is one who lives out the word of God. Not perfectly. We're not going to do it perfectly. But we're saved by faith alone. Absolutely. I will die for that truth. But faith that saves is never alone. It is always accompanied by, by visible acts and evidences in our life that we're changed. And we seek to obey the word that we believe. Well, we've looked at the first two lies. Trials are bad and faith is only what I think. Lie number three, religion is private. And just like the first two, there's one respect that this is true. Faith is personal. It has to be personal. It has to be genuine in that way. If your faith is just for public, if your faith is just for Sunday morning, then you're a hypocrite. But the issues that I see is when someone says that their, their faith is, is mine, it's very private, meaning their, their walk with God is for them and for them alone. And they don't want to talk about their faith. They don't want to be challenged or encouraged in their faith. So they, they've treated their religion as a tool for self-centeredness and control over their life. But if James is right in chapter 2, and I believe he is, and your faith must have some, some action and saving faith and Christian faith, it, it cannot be private. It cannot be a, a soul by yourself. 
It's personal, yes, but it's not private. And the New Testament teaches us again and again, both God and his people should be involved with what you do with your words and your time and your money and your pleasure. And so as James has been walking through this book, he sets the stage by teaching us that trials aren't bad. I mean, your faith is not just your head. Hearing the word means we obey the word and real faith is active faith. And so as we we see this, both of our arms now nailed to the wall, he makes the final punch and he says, Christianity is a public thing. Our life as Christians is a public thing. And if you understand that your faith needs action, that this leads to an action, it's not private then. And James is writing to believers, writing to the church that was struggling. And this church and churches were struggling with divisions. They're everywhere if you read the book carefully. Let me just name a few as we walk through. These believers were boastful about their future, chapter 4, 13 through 17. These believers, they're really quick to become angry with one another and use hurtful words, chapter 1, verse 19. These believers were cursing at one another, chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. They're slandering one another, chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. They're grumbling against one another, chapter 5, verse 9. And they not only show favoritism to the rich, they oppress the poor, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And it seems from the outside looking in that the reason for this division, for the trouble in the church, is possibly the lack of qualified and careful teaching. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I find it interesting that James opens up this section here, chapter 3, with a brief word about teaching. Then he'll come back to it later in in verse 14. He says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It says, a good teacher is opposite of this. And then verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Humility is a good sign for a teacher. But really, the the overwhelming focus of chapter 3 is about what? Anyone know? Just want to make sure you're still awake. Words, right? Our words and the tremendous effect that it has on people. Again, Christianity is not private. It's public. It's with other people living out our life. He says, the, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by as much as such a small fire. And, and we might want to view our words a display of who we truly are, but our words belong to God. Verse 9, he says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Our, our speech is not primarily for demonstrating ourselves, It is for demonstrating God's character. God claims ownership over every word you speak, my friends. There are no wasted words. There there are no throwaway words. God owns them all. And and wise, careful, measured speech is from God and brings in the most glory and it brings the most unity in the body of Christ. And so James displays all the divisions in the church, but, but what can we do about it? He doesn't leave us wondering. 
He gives us some tools. The, the first thing he does is lets us know where the problem comes from. It's, it's selfishness. The, the same root for, for those that think religion is a private thing. He says in chapter 3, verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Selfishness knows no boundaries. He says in chapter 4, and, and beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. If you're confused about this at all, or maybe you don't believe it's true, just come on over to my house and sit with my kids for an hour. And then observe me, because you'll see it there. It's true everywhere you go. And selfishness, he says, is, is the root. And behind that is pride, he says. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Selfishness and pride, that is root behind these issues of division. And how do you get out of this mess? Is there any way? How do we end this vicious cycle of selfishness and pride? Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Anyone have any divisions right now in your life? Whether here in the church, or in your home? Here's the answer. James gives it to us. We get out of this mess when we humble ourselves. And this is a beautiful thing to talk about. It really is. I mean, and right now, hopefully, I'm, I'm sure most of you are really relaxed right now, right? Sitting here, uh, maybe a little conviction in your heart, but you can push it down. You can dismiss that right now. You can be good. You can finish the service and, and head out for lunch. No biggie. Boy, that was nice talking about, you know, humbling ourselves. That was an encouraging thing that Pastor Jeff said. You know, I don't know if that's that big of an issue for me. And then you get in the car and, and someone says, you know, well, well, well we're going to go head home for lunch. And you're like, wait, what? I thought we we're going to go to the restaurant. Why wasn't I included in this decision? Who made this decision? You know, five minutes after the service. And you're back in the conflict, back in the division. And you think, well, maybe I'm not that way. You just internally have that division. But we all do. And it comes down to, to chapter 4, verse 1. And i got to be careful here because I'm going to launch another sermon, and I can't do that. I have to wait till I get there. But a lot of the world's issues, a lot of the issues that you face in your, in your family's life, in your work life, they come back to chapter 4. Because you're at war. You don't realize that. You're at war all the time. You have a lot of opportunities. Every day you have an opportunity to humble yourself in some way. And what do you do? It's, it's easy to talk about it. It's hard to display it. And one of the problems James says, why it's hard, is that we think that our lives are our own. That's why. 
And so he warns them. He says in verse 13, he continues, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. And don't be foolish. Friends, you don't have control of your life. Worldly people think that their lives are their own. Worldly people think that they can plan their lives and they can control their lives. Christians, we can't believe that. We shouldn't believe that. We don't live that way. We don't plan our lives. Instead, we give our lives over to the one who who can plan our lives perfectly. And we submit ourselves to him. That's why James says in chapter 4, verse 4, You adulterous people, do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He calls them adulterous people. They are religious bigamists. They're married to God, but really they're married to the world already. And you need to, if you're a Christian this morning, you need to remember that that you and all that you have belongs to God. Time is not yours. Your money is not yours. Your pleasure is not yours. God owns it all. And, And James, pastorally, lovingly, is willing to step out and warn them. He cares enough to warn them, and he continues on his warning. He says, God's judgment is coming. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And everything that you have built your life on besides God, he says, will pass away. And what will remain is the fact that God will judge. And among other things in your life, in this section, he will judge you for how you spend your money, friends. We live best in this world when we remember the world that is yet to come. We have many struggles in this world, but the greatest is forgetting that we're not made for this world. We're made for the one to come. And we as Christians in America can get so caught up in the political system and making America great that we forget that we're not here for America. We're not here for houses. We're not here for our careers. The riches of this world will fade, but the treasures of God will remain. And so we can't, none of us can get caught up in this world because we live for the world to come. And this is the same thing that James warns his readers, coming back to That verse, you adulterous people, do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, he doesn't mean that that they are adulterous because they're all committing adultery, but that they are cheating on God by being deeply influenced by this world. 
but he says the judge is standing at the door. Verse seven, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. God is coming back. And for those that have lived their own way, today is the day to repent and to turn back to God. But for those that are following and loving and trusting in him, be patient. Just like the the farmer waiting for the fruit of the labor to come, Christ is coming back. And he gives us an encouragement. Remember those that are patiently enduring suffering, God will be faithful to them. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But the last thing here, and as I kind of tied up, James tells his readers is to love peace. And we come back to chapter 3, verse 17. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then he closes the letter by reinforcing this, those to pray for the sick in chapter 5, verse 14, and confessing their sins one to another in same chapter, verse 16, and then bringing back, he ends the letter by bringing back those that are wandering. It was a hard message for me to study and write, just to be honest with you, because I wanted to launch into multiple things. And there's much, I'm sure, as you sat here thinking, well, Jeff didn't talk about that. Well, hopefully I will as we get through this book. But we've glossed over a lot. We've, we've been flying over a, a thousand foot above this. But this last point is important. Religion is not a private thing. Your your walk with God is not a private thing. It's not just you. I mean, Satan wants it to be private. He wants you to to stay away from others and not get connected. But Christianity is not a private thing. It's meant to be lived out in the body of Christ. It's meant to be lived out in a church family. I want to encourage you to continue to to, to not pull back, but push in to the church. Well, as you see, and, and hopefully in the next number of weeks, the book of James is very practical to the Christian life. How we understand trials, how we live out faith, and how we live in peace with the people of God. And God has gifted us this book, and I look forward to walking through it, if the Lord wills, so that we can look at these verses. But I want to warn you, it, it's not going to be a cakewalk. He's going to step on our toes. And there's going to be needed humility for everyone involved. There's going to be needed teachability and a gracious attitude as we, as we leaked, alert, look to, to learn and apply what God's word says to us. I don't believe that God is done with Edgewood Bible Church. And as long as our doors are open, we will corporately continue to seek him and follow him and, and learn his word and apply it to our lives. This morning we have the opportunity as we end our service to to celebrate what Christ has done. So as the men come forward, we're going to be partaking of the the Lord's Supper. It's communion. And in the Lord's Supper, we renew our commitment to Christ and to his people. And we come together to remember what Christ did for us on the cross. And I want you to understand, this meal is for sinners. 
And so if you're not a sinner, it's not for you. In the Lord's Supper, we remember the glorious gospel, but there's more to consider. First, it's an opportunity for us to again express unity as, as a church. It's, it's a fellowship together as believers. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, we ask that you don't partake of this meal. Second, it's a symbolic remembrance of Christ's sinless life and atoning death on our behalf. And third, it's a proclamation of Christ's death and a resurrection and return for his bride. And last, it's an opportunity for you to spend some time and to examine your heart. So as the men deliver to you the elements of the Lord's Supper, I'm gonna read some scripture to focus our attention again to why we celebrate. But remember that you celebrate together with the body of Christ. You celebrate what Christ has done and you consider your life. You examine your heart and confess sins to God. So let me pray and then we'll partake. God, I thank you that we can join together as the body here. And I ask as this, this, uh, this supper begins that our hearts and our minds will focus upon you. We, we remember again what you've done for us and we can rejoice in it. And even though there's this somber parts of this, there's, there's times of rejoicing and remembering of who you are and what you've done for us. Help us to remember that now as we partake together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.